Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Phil, great to see you as always. How are you, sir? Yeah, good to be here, all, as always. Uh, very well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a, been a weirdly quiet week with no snooker on, uh, which seems very odd because it was very busy. And we know there's a very busy time coming up, but I suppose it's nice to have a few days of a fallow period to get ready for the, you know, the real business end of the season. Yes, we will be chock-a-block, won't we, the, the next few weeks. The... The excitement is growing all the time and we're quite excited today to say the very least because we really do have a very special guest for you here today. This man has been a snooker professional for three decades. He became known to the wider public when knocking Steve Davis out of the World Championship on his crucible debut in 1999 and he soon became a top 16 player. He finally won the ranking event his talents merited when claiming the Players' Tour Championship in Thailand in 2015. And two years after that, he reached the final of the Masters. And just two weeks ago, at the age of 47, he enjoyed the moment of his career, brilliantly beating Judd Trump to win the Welsh Open title. We are delighted to say that Joe Perry joins us on Talking Snooker. Joe, it's great to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Yeah, obviously, uh, it comes at a better time than it would have done if we'd done this interview for about three or four weeks ago. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm still like really buzzing after the recent events. I mean, that was going to be my first question. Are you still sort of on cloud nine, and how long do you think that's going to last for? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm still really you know chuffed about it. It was a it was a really special week. One that, if I'm really honest, thought that maybe I'd missed the chance you know that week wouldn't come along you know the way things were going and the way I felt about Snoop at the time so yeah it'll, it'll definitely see me through to the end of the season and then uh, you know once that's all done and dusted and then we get all the holiday season over it'll be back to business uh, the beginning of the next season but no, we're back to business now obviously but 
but yeah, no matter what happens between now and the end of the season, it's not going to spoil what happened the other week. Have you had a chance to, to celebrate properly? Not really. I come back, then it was a bit of a whirlwind, sort of saying hello, visiting, and then off to Turkey. Uh, uh, and a, a lot of people said to me, why don't I pull out of Turkey? Because I basically didn't really give myself any chance of winning. But I've been very critical of players pulling out of tournaments in the past. So it wasn't something I was prepared to do, even on the back of, you know, my best ever week. So, no, I wasn't prepared to do that. I, I probably should have done, give myself a bit more time to recover. But, but no, I haven't really had time to celebrate yet. But uh, I'm, I'm going to wait. There's plenty of time in the off season, so you know it's not like my friends and that won't still enjoy the night when we have it, even if it's like a month, two months afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Uh, Joe, I want to take you back a bit to the to the start of the week, going into it in Newport. Did you feel differently at all to past tournaments, or was it frankly not really? It just felt almost like any other. No, it, it definitely felt better than every tournament so far this season. Uh, this season, up until the other week, had been really poor for me. You know, I, hadn't, I didn't enjoy it. I weren't putting enough work in. I didn't play well at any tournaments. I had no confidence. But it did feel different because confidence was building. And I, I've said in a few interviews, I, I beat Lee Walker in a qualifier at Leicester, which had nothing to do with the Welsh Open. It was to qualify for Turkey. And it was, it was the best I'd played all season by a an absolute mile you know and I know Lee I know Lee's a really good lad and he he doesn't sort of say things that aren't true and he and he said afterwards he's you know he was really surprised how well I played with how the season had gone the referee even said to me afterwards he went well you played really well there and I just looked at him I said well I, I can actually play the game so don't sound too shocked <laughs> but I think that was a I think that was a genuine like reaction from people because my form had been so bad and, and just that one little game gave me a lot of confidence. And then I, I beat a good player in Chao Yupeng in uh, the European Open, which I'd qualified four months before, but I sort of backed up that win. And then I, I did go into the Welsh with a lot more confidence and belief than I had done at any stage during the season. I didn't think I was playing well enough to win it. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a good player and, and, and confidence is everything and, and your mindset is everything once you get your game. And my game's always been there. It's just the other stuff that's sometimes just eluded me. Mm. It's interesting because I, I thought um, there, was a, there was a game earlier in the season when you nicked a decider against Stephen Holworth. I think that was the European uh, Masters as well. That, that felt like something of a turning point as well. Yeah, a little. But I think, you know, when you've been playing as long as me, just a win isn't sometimes enough to give you the confidence. I think you have to play well and win. And I didn't play well against Stephen Hallworth. You know, I was lucky in the end. He, he sort of he threw the match away, really, if truth be known, at the end. And so I, I come through it, but it wasn't enough to sort of give me confidence. You know, it was, it was a win, which just sort of stopped the rot and, you know, just helped me sort of build from there. But it wasn't... The actual performance against Lee Walker was, you know, really, really good. And, and that gave me the confidence to go into my next game, believing I could I could win. It's amazing how often players say that, that you can come off winning a game and still feeling bad. You'd rather almost sometimes play well and lose. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because you've got something to sort of go on. Obviously, the, the win is the most important thing, you know, because you've got something to build. And especially the way the season's been set out, you know, winning that game against Stephen Hall meant I didn't have to play the next round the next day, even though as I wasn't in good form, you know, I was a few weeks away, well, months actually from 
playing the next round of that. So it was something I could sort of like really work on my game and get ready for the next stage of that. But but yeah, it was you need to play well, especially I think more so for us sort of older guys, you know, because it's, it's, it's a bit different for us. You know, I, I remember when I used to play bad when I was like 19, 20, it didn't make a difference. And I just couldn't wait to play the next one. But I think I think it gets harder as you get older to sort of deal with the poor performances. I mean, the run you had at the Welsh Open, Joe, I mean, it wasn't one of those where the tournament opened up a bit or the draw opened up. You kept having hard matches. In a way, is that sometimes easier to focus the mind? You think, I can't let the levels drop here. I've got Mark Allen next. I've got Kyron next. I've got Ricky Walden. This is a, you know, tough one after tough one. It was, it was quite a run. Yeah, it could work a number of ways, really. I think the way it worked for me that week was because I was under sort of like pressure that I put myself under, you know, for my ranking side things and stuff. Sometimes in a way, it's better to play a high ranked player because, you know, even though there's pressure in every single match you play, sometimes it's hard when you play someone that okay, you expect to beat or everyone expects you to beat. You can put extra pressure on yourself. You know, I had it earlier in the season I wasn't playing well at all and I you know I lost to all the players I lost to okay they can play but you know if I played them like now I think the results would be very different you know I lost to Sahil Fahidi I lost to Ben Hancorn and and uh, Zhang, Zhang King and a few of them you know they're good players but I think the extra pressure you put on yourself when you're not playing well to beat these players that you should beat makes it a little bit harder whereas when you play Mark Allen you can actually just play because you know, if you lose, you lose. That's it. You know, he's a great player. Same as Kyron Wilson, same as Ricky Walden. You can actually just play the game for what it is rather than all the other mental demons driving you mad, telling you you should win and you can't afford to mess this draw up and stuff like that, you know? And, and maybe would, you, would your age play a factor in your vast experience in a sense? Because I guess some guys, if they've got Mark Allen, Kyron Wilson, Ricky Walden, but because you've known these guys forever and you obviously you've been playing longer than most of them... Do, you don't probably get overawed by anybody, do you? No, no, I don't get overawed. I, to be, I'll be honest, I think still when I play Ronnie O'Sullivan, I still, still can like, sort of have that effect on me, but no one else, no. You know, I, I can sort of like, I've, I've beaten everyone. You know, there's no one I haven't beat. Okay, my, my record isn't positive against everyone, obviously, mm. but there's no one I haven't beat in the game. So I'm, I'm not afraid to play anyone. And, and yeah, sometimes it, it can just just help you know because like I say you just you go into the match as, a, as just purely to play snooker against someone and, and and that doesn't always happen you know sometimes there's so much else going on in and around the whole situation that it stops you from actually just playing snooker and focusing on the game itself was can you remember the point in that week where you thought I might actually win this uh, yeah I, I yeah, I think it was it was definitely like before the right last stages. I think I beat Kyron Wilson. But I beat Mark Allen, yeah, it was a good game. And, and like I said, I, I think there's not many people that can come away from a tournament and say, I actually breezed through it. I was never in danger of losing. I think somewhere along the line, you have a scare, a big scare. And Mark Allen, Mr. Brown would arrest for all, the last Brown, to knock me out. And I got through that one. I then played Kyron Wilson, who and I, I played like probably the best match I've played this season. You know, I literally just didn't miss a ball. And it, I, it was then I thought, I thought to myself, well, 
he would have fancied winning this tournament. And I've just like completely annihilated him, played great snooker. So there's no reason why I can't win it. And I think at that point, I, I thought maybe, maybe. And then when I backed up the good performance against Kyron, against Ricky, then I, I, I genuinely did. Because, you know, Jack Lazowski, yes, great player. But, you know, I know if I play good, I can, I've got enough for Jack. And then who knows what can happen in the final. Yeah, that, that win against Kyron, who's got the breaks here. 138, 126, 73 and 71. Uh, I mean, that must have been some feeling after that match. Yeah, and, and, and even like the, the 73 and the 71, you know, they were like, they were frame winners. They were, mm. It was like one chance, one game. And, and, you know, there's lots of players in the game that can do that, but it's not easy to do it at a tournament against a higher ranked player, you know, a, a serial sort of winner, serial performer. And that, and that, that gives you a, even more confidence. You know, you do it against them guys, then, you know, your game's in, in good shape. And going into the final, Joe, obviously... Any match against Judd Trump is bloody hard for any player. But it, for want of a better phrase, Phil Haig, <laughs> but it, it wasn't Judd firing on all cylinders, was it? Completely. It was maybe a B-plus Judd, sometimes a B. That must have given you a bit of heart thinking, no, he could turn it on today, but he hasn't quite looked the peak Judd Trump. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I don't know about other players. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always honest and, you know, I, I watch a lot of snooker and I watched Judd sort of make his way to the final that week. And, and you know, he, he probably only got to the final because he just tries so hard and his temperament's so good. You know, he, his game was nothing like what we've seen and, and what we ended up seeing in the final in Turkey. You know, he's, he's an absolute phenomenal player. When I, I was playing great snooker two or three years ago and I seemed to run into him in the last 16 of what well, seemed like everything, but like three or four times... And, and as good as I've played, he was just too good. So I know what he's capable of. But I, I've also, like I say, I'm also aware of how his game has been up until that point this season. And it, and it was a little bit stop-start, you know, the odd bit of brilliance, but it wasn't the consistent high break building, solid long potting, you know, it wasn't wasn't there. So I, I genuinely believed I had a, it was a 50-50 game. And if I could handle myself in the pressure of the situation... I believe that I was playing as good as Judd and if not better that week. I mean, you talk about handling the pressure. One thing that really struck for me watching, especially on the final night, is just how relaxed you seem. Because the commentators always say, oh, this is the one to get over the line, for example. But you didn't outwardly show that. I'm sure there were nerves inside. But you seem to have that almost serenity kind of thing that you need in those sort of, you know, the heat of the battle type moments. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think experience of other events over the years helped you know I, people talk about experience they just assume that because you're 47 you're really experienced but it's not always the case you know I'm not experienced of big finals you know massive finals you know the, the full crowd walking down the stairs all the jamboree I'm as experienced as I am in terms of playing snooker for 30 years I've not been in many big finals but what I tried to really pull on that day was the, the experience of playing Ronnie in the final of the Masters yeah. because when I, when I stood at the top of the stairs at 4-all against Ronnie mm. I literally just froze I literally just could not control anything my, my head was in a spin I just didn't fancy hitting the, the white you know I just and, I, and I, I basically lost that match in them next four frames from the start of the evening session 
Mm. Yeah, no, no, I'm not saying I would have won if I hadn't been like that because Ronnie's Ronnie and it's the Masters and it's Ronnie's tournament. But but I literally gave myself no chance. I went from 4-4 to 8-4 and didn't even like attempt to give him a game, you know? So I was, I was prepared for what might happen in the evening session against Judd. And, and I was I really like, um, that's why I was so proud of myself because I was so calm and confident at the start of the evening session. It just grew and grew and grew and built. And, and the nearer I got to the winning line, the more confident I felt. I just wanted the chance to come where sometimes, you know, you're sitting in your chair and you, you just don't want that chance to come because you just know you're going to mess it up. Whereas on that evening, I just wanted chances because I knew I was going to take them. And you you remained remarkably calm afterwards as well because it was emotional scenes, but you held yourself together probably better than some people watching because I'm sure there were some uh, some tears even watching the TV. It was amazing. Yeah, I'll be honest. It, it did get close. You know, when uh, obviously I spoke about my, my parents being there and, you know, what it meant for, me to, for him to be there. But then luckily for me, the next question was about the match and uh, I quickly got, quickly got myself together had that the next question been something else to do with family or something i think i would have uh would have cracked up but no luckily the, the questions come in a good order and i sort of saved myself oh and everyone i mean everyone would have been on board it was a it was lovely scenes and and clearly um and obviously it came out you've spoken about how what the illness your dad got through and everything so it, it almost came at a perfect time this didn't it when everything's come together yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was a, it was a horrible moment last year for you know maybe my family and obviously my dad. Uh, we you know we thought we'd lost him, but well, we, we did lose him very temporarily. Luckily, paramedics are exceptional people. Uh, and then yeah, it was a, it was a tough, real tough time. You know, trying to get everything back to normal and and there's lots of things that come on the back of someone you know having that you know that close to death. There's lots of mental issues to deal with and stuff. And yeah, it was tough. So. Yeah, it was, that made it extra special. And like I said in the interview, my mum, the last time she watched me play, I lost 9-8 to David Gray in the semi-final of the UK. Someone probably tell me what year that was, but she, she said then she would never, ever come to watch me play snooker again. She just couldn't handle it. Yeah. And that happened, that final happened to be the next time she came to watch. So, yeah, absolutely brilliant the way it worked out. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. It was. That was. I mean, we, we've seen some... Magical trophy shots throughout the years in snooker. But I think that one with with you and your parents was was up there. Actually, it was it was it was pure magic. Just as, the, as a fan and writer of snooker and lover, you know, it was just very special. Yeah, and it, it just goes to show like how much it means to like the whole family. You know, because it's not it's all right. I'm the snooker player, but but everyone has to like be a part of that. You know, I've been playing snooker since I was like my dad took me to a snooker club when I was twelve years old. So. You know, my, my brothers, you know, they'll, they'll give you a little sob story, but, you know, how they missed out. because My dad was always with me, trumpsing around the country with me, and they only stay in jest. But, but it, is, it, is a, it is a thing, you know, everyone has to, like, play a part. And, and it's just, show, you, you realise when something like that, big like that happens, just how many people are actually, like, rooting for you. You know, they, they say they are and stuff. But my dad, he was inundated with messages from, like, fellow taxi drivers because obviously he's, he's always talked about me when they're sitting on the ranks and stuff, you know, about me being a snooker player. And, and he was just inundated with people he hasn't spoke to for years because he's not doing it anymore. You know, just saying like, well done, brilliant to see you and everything. So, yeah, it's mad. Like, it's how many people it affects. Of course. And 
the, the, the big factor as well, of course, was that when you won your first ranking event, they weren't there. So you've spoken about how you kind of wanted it to happen, didn't know if it would, maybe thought it might not. So it was almost that there was a, even though you've been a top, top player for so long, it had a sort of fairy tale element to it. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and like, you know, I'm, I'm friends with so many people on the tour and so envy or jealousy is never, never a thing, but like, I, I can't think of another word to describe it other than like a bit of jealousy you know when I saw Mark King who's been a friend of mine since we were 13 14 years old you know we've known each other all that time and we've always got on we've always made we still practice together but you know I, I feel that I've probably just had a, a fractionally better career than him but I feel that he had so much more in that Northern Ireland moment you know when he won it it just yeah. seemed like everything was perfect for him and I was so pleased for him but I just feel as, as good as my career's been I've never had that that moment so that so when that happened, it was just absolutely perfect. And you mentioned it sort of through your dad there, but have you got a sense of how popular this victory has been? Because it really has gone down a storm with snooker fans. Yeah, no, I have, yeah. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always tried to be honest in my career. I've always tried to be myself. I've never tried to, like, pretend to be anyone else. And, and, and you know, when I'm, I'm polite to people and I reply to pretty much most people on Twitter and social media, you know, it's genuine. I don't do it to to get clicks or fans and and you know I think then when like I say when that something happens like it did the other week you realize you know the sort of effect you've had on people and, and the response I got was just absolutely phenomenal you know it took me I think I spent two days like obviously not non-stop but but literally replying to every single person that, that messaged me and 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 you know it's it's nice I think it's I think it's important you know because without them you know what are we you know we're the sport becomes so much smaller. Uh, you know, we don't get the, the notoriety we get. We don't earn the money we earn. So, you know, the fans are just so important and it's, it's good to bond with them. And, I mean, obviously you've proven that you can still compete at the very top level there and there's plenty more to come. But if your career had finished without something, winning something like that, that moment, and now you've got it, has it sort of... How, how differently will you look back on your career because of Wales? Oh yeah, I, I think I think no matter what happens now, I've I haven't like achieved everything I set out to achieve. Obviously not. I don't know how many people actually do that? Very very few percent, I'd say. But yeah, I, I can walk away from Stuka now, like happy with everything that's happened. You know, I've I've got other stuff to show for it. You know, I, I live in a nice house. I'm financially secure. So all that was already there, but but now I've got them memories, you know, and, and that can never, ever be taken away. I've got like, my snooker room sort of like, it's just got added another piece to the, the sort of trophy cabinet. And and yeah, it's just, it was the, the finishing piece, I think. I want to ask you a bit more about Turkey as well, because that's where my, pretty much all the players were. I mean, when you first arrived and saw your friends or just general players that you know, they must have kind of swarmed around you a bit, didn't they? Or just like, you know, patted you on the back, said congratulations. That must have been really lovely when your peers are, are sort of praising you and hailing you. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Because, you know, as, as, as great as the Stuka fans are, and, and they are incredible, you know, when you get that recognition from fellow players, especially ones that I hold in real high regard, you know, players that have been around as long as me, people like Anthony Hamilton and Mark Davis, you know, just to name a couple, that really means something. And, you know, they, they sort of, 
all right, they didn't go out of their way, but like, oh, I was, I had a meeting when I got there with uh, people from World Snooker and, and they, a few players walked past and they sort of like, you know, diverted just purely just to come and say well done, shake my hand. They'd already said well done on social media platforms and messages, mm-hmm. but they wanted to do it in person. So yeah, the, the snooker, the snooker bunch, the family, you want to call them that, they're, you know, it's, it's a real, real great place to be. It's the, the tour is incredible. You know, there's, there's no animosity. You know, the, the press sometimes try and build up rivalries and things, which there's always going to be rivalries in sport, but, but the actual tour itself is, is incredible. Everyone's just so behind each other. Do we try and build up things, Phil? Is that fair? Not particularly yourself, but <laughs> no. you know, I think I think they like to. It does, no. it does create a story. You know, they they tried a few years ago. We had the the Kyron and Judd thing, and they sort of make it out to be more than what it actually is. You know, it's just it's two great Stuka players that keep coming across each other. That's that's all it is. You know, it's, it's no more than that. I know. I'm 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 just teasing. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> There's there's ultimately just too much respect for people at the top level. It, it, any professionals, really. Everyone knows how hard everyone works, don't they? So um, even if you don't like each other personally, which might, which is quite rare anyway, I think everyone has such respect for each other as players. Yeah, well, you know, we all know how hard it is to win. You know, I, I've been I've been playing a long, long time, and and you know, I know I'm sort of regarded as a as a top player. Have been for a long time, and you know. I've got very few wins to show for it. So it's just, it's just evidence of how hard it is to win. And sometimes we take for granted when, you know, the likes of Neil and Judd and, and obviously Ronnie, John and Mark just keep winning and sell with, you know, we, we take it for granted because we're so used to seeing them win. We take it for granted because they're so good at it. But, you know, when someone like me wins or like a few years ago when Anthony won his first tournament, I think that puts into perspective just how hard it is to win on the tour. Mm. No, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I was speaking to Michael Hull um, last week because he's sort of fighting to stay on tour and he, he he speaks quite openly how he feels like he's failed in his career and he's not achieved what he wanted to do. But as you mentioned before, you know, everyone starts a professional sports career wanting to be the best or one of the very, very best. And it's a tiny percentage that can actually do that. And um, it's sort of underrated uh, the achievements of guys like yourself who've been around the top for so long. They might not get the get as much silverware as the top, as the very top guys. But it's unbelievable to be, you know, you seemed like you were ranked between 20, 10 and 20 for 20 years, which is unbelievable. I think I, I, think, I think I was. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, imagine any other field saying you were between 10 and 20 in the world on the planet out of 7 billion people at something. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I know. And sometimes you have to, like, like as I said, it's so easy to forget. You just take it for granted because that's what you do. But, Sometimes you need to remind yourself, you know, so other people reminding you, but sometimes you need to remind yourself. And, and I've done that when I was like struggling earlier in the season and, and then the Masters come around and I just, just to myself, I sort of said to myself, well, you, see, you see players like tweeting, players I've got a lot of time for that I think one day will be good. I think Louis Heathcote was one, he tweeted, saying about the atmosphere and saying, oh, I'd just love to play there one day. And then I, I thought to myself, yeah, I've played there loads of times. You know, I've, I've been <laughs> to the final and, and but something you just sometimes you just need to remind yourself that you know you you are a top player and because it's it's so easy to just get caught up in everything and just like day to day do the same thing same thing but you do you do need to remind yourself you know sometimes that you know you've been there a long time and you're a good player. Yeah, I suppose it's that thing that there's only one 
there's only one person that leaves every tournament happy, really. Again, I was speaking to Ollie Lyons the other day, he just had his first ever quarterfinal, but all he could remember was that it was his most painful loss. So it's hard to take the positives sometimes. Oh, it is, yeah. We're, we're all, like, tough with ourselves. But, but that, that, is, that is, like, where the mental strength comes in, in sport and snooker especially. I think, you know, it's one of the toughest. I think we all know that. We're, we're a bit biased because we're into snooker, but it is definitely one of the toughest sports mentally to deal with. It's, it's just hard. And, like, yeah, because I think my, my, one of my worst ever defeats come at, you know, what should have been a... A, a memorable moment for me, you know, playing the one table setup at the Crucible. You know, not many players get to do that, but yeah, it's probably one of my worst ever, ever defeats. Not not in a in a bad way or negative way, just because you're so close to achieving something and, and yet so far. Mm. No, of course that was it. Was a close match. You're talking about that that Crucible semi. Um, Joe, we'll take you down memory lane in, in a moment if that's okay. But I just want to. Um, focus a little bit more on you talking about how you've fallen out of love with Snoop a little bit in, in recent times, maybe obviously the, in the months before before the Welsh Open. Was COVID and lockdown a big reason for that? Or was that part of it? Is it just you're getting older? Can you put your finger on it? I, I think it was, it all sort of stemmed from COVID and lockdown because I think if you ask most players over the years, like at every single tournament, you know where where would I be? I would be in in the players' lounge, chatting about certain things, suit of football, whatever, or I'd be out in the arena watching. And that's how I've sort of like enjoyed snooker. I've always enjoyed the challenge of going overseas and playing. You know, I've always embraced it, looked forward to it. I've never moaned about travelling to China here, there, and everywhere. It's something I've really enjoyed and and appreciated about being a snooker player. And when lockdown come. I absolutely hated it. You know, that was just that was just not me. I've never been one to sit in my hotel room until I'm due to play and then go and play. Uh, you know, I was sitting in my car because we, there was no players' lounge. You know, you got tested and you you played your match and that was it. So I'm, I'm sitting in my car eating a sandwich I've just got from the garage for like an hour before I'm due to play and yeah. and I just completely hated it. You know, going up the club to practice. It was literally going in the club practice no one there, just me and the table or Neil on the other table. And I, I just I just completely hated it. Everything I loved about snooker had been like whipped away and and yeah, I just just lost all interest, all desire to sort of put work in. I didn't really bother practicing because I weren't looking forward to going to the tournaments, you know, I sort of weren't bothered one way or the other. So and and, and sometimes it gets gets difficult then to to get yourself out of that. You know, and I, I, I know lockdown was tough for everyone and we had it far better than the most. But just on a purely snooker level, it was just probably the worst, the worst two years of my, my whole career since, ever since I started. I remember, I think it was in the UK when you were, you were on punditry duty mm. and uh, I think Ronnie had played and you'd sort of were both saying you'd almost rather be doing the punditry than the playing. Um, I suppose that is sort of indicative of how you're feeling. I don't know if that's changed now. Yeah, no, it's something I do really, really enjoy. But at the time, if I, I think at the time, you know, how I felt at the time, if someone had offered me a, a full-time job in punditry, like job secure, you know, for quite a few years, I think I could have walked away from snooker at the time. But, but like, obviously not now, and not just because of the Welsh, even before Christmas when I sort of got my sort of mojo back a little bit. 
you know, I, I don't want to give up. That's that was one of the incentives for me to start working harder. I looked at the rankings and and saw how low I was, and I thought well, I'm not ready to give up my tour status yet. So you know, put the work in and do everything I could to try and keep it. I didn't know it was going to happen quite so quickly, but but I was prepared for the fight. You know, I didn't want to go to Q school. I've always said I want to go to Q school, so I was prepared to like work tooth and nail to to keep my tour status because. I wasn't ready to, to give up playing yet. But like I say, go back 12, 18 months, I, w I would have handed my cue in no problem and, and been a pundit or whatever you want to call it. Hmm. And I wonder, I wonder, which we speculated on after the Welsh Open, whether in a way that media work gave you a different perspective, i.e. you know, playing isn't everything, you can take a step back. Do, do you think it played a factor in, in what happened in Newport in some ways? I don't, I don't know because I've been doing it a few years now and it hasn't really had that impact till now. So I think there was a lot of factors. I think the fact that I was starting to work a bit harder, I, I did gain some confidence from a few wins. I also said like I started coaching in January just to try and get do something different. And and that really that really helped me, you know, to see people coming along that and are not professional standard and how much they love it and how much they enjoy it and how much they get out of a session and just going away being a little bit better each time and mm. and, and little things like that just just give you the like I say just the the buzz to to do it again you know and you, you do like I said before you need to sometimes appreciate what you've got and you know when these people come for these lessons and they and they're just so buzzing to see you and they sort of you know and you sort of realize you, you know you're a good player and you, you've got a lot still to give and and it was a combination of everything, you know, just it all sort of come together at the right time. And, and, and that's why I'm still sort of on a high with everything, really. I'm still coaching. You know, I wasn't going to stop just because I won a tournament. I'm, I'm still going to be doing the punditry. I've, I've got a first week lined up at the Crucible. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just really enjoying every, every department of it at the moment. Well, you know, Michael Holt is, is giving Phil some tips. Now, there was a bit of a sort of joke on social media that you might be able to, to help me. I mean, I'd be very embarrassed because I'm very bad, but you're obviously a brilliant player. Maybe you could work your magic on someone as bad as me. Well, yeah, there's, there's no reason why not. I, can't, I probably won't be able to turn you into a, a professional, but, <laughs> but you know, people, but I, I just think no matter what, what level you're at at snooker, like I've, had, I've had quite a few people coming to me now and, and some 100 break players, some some literally struggle to pot a blue off the spot, but but they they're, they're improving. You know, you get messages from them, and you know, you give them little routines to practice, and and a few days later, you get a message saying, oh, "I've been practicing, I've finished my routines," and a few of them made their highest breaks in the league. And another guy he hadn't had a century; he had centuries, but he'd not had one for two years. He's had three in a month. You know, it's, and the things like that are really like I, I personally get so much satisfaction out of that because you know that they're. they're they're enjoying it so much more. And no matter what level you play at, if you can play it better, you'll enjoy it more. And that's what sport's all about, especially if you're doing it for social. You know, it's just about enjoying it and getting the most out of it. I'll give you a ring five minutes after we finish recording, OK? OK. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I guess we should go back to, back to the start now. Uh, obviously, there's been lots of talk about the Class of 92 and being involved in that, and that's when you turn pro. Um, I guess the first time sort of we bur you burst onto the scene why, on a wider perspective was 1999 at the Crucible. But, you know, that's seven years there uh, between, between turning pro and that. What do you remember of th those times? 
I remember being a bit confused about everything. Uh, I had a different start in professional snooker to most. You know, uh, my, my, my dad was all for it. He was 100% behind me, you know, go for it, see how you get on. Uh, my mum, on the other hand, was a bit more more worried, uh, cautious, shall we say. So she she insisted that uh, I, I finish like, not finish my education, but get a good education just in case I didn't make it as a professional snooker player. So I, I sort of left school with decent GCSEs. Uh, she then had a compromise that I'd do another year, do another year of GCSEs at college just to get another year behind me. I, I then done really well in them. So I ended up walking away with like 11 GCSEs or six at A level, uh, A star level and whatever. So then that really didn't work out in my favour because she then <laughs> said I should do A levels. So I, I did I did three <laughs> A levels and I, I did law, sociology and accountancy at A level. So even though I was playing snooker and I turned professional then because the, the opportunity come along to get your tour card with, if you had could afford it, but I turned pro, but I wasn't, I was never really like, full-time you know I was, I was full-time in education and it wasn't until I finished my A-levels at the age of 19 that I sort of really started to play snooker every day and that's why it was a bit of a slow burner for me because players I'd been with at under 16 level people like Mark King and people like that I never put myself on the thing as Ronnie, John and Mark they're, they're, they're head and shoulders they are three of the greatest ever but people like Mark King I was always like you know quite level with and and I, I, after my, I finished my A-levels, he was at like 250 places above me in the rankings. I was still like 330-something. And, and then it wasn't until after that. So, so my first three years really were, you know, they was just me just being a professional because I could. It wasn't until the sort of 96, 97 season I really started to make inroads. And then we had, then we had the Q School thing type thing at Plymouth to get the main tour reduced to 96. And I got through in the very first tournament. I beat I beat Alan Burnett, who was tipped to be like a future star in the final of the first event. And then it sort of all, all went for me then. You know, a year later, I was in the top 64. I then got into 32. And then the progress just kept building and building and building. And then I sort of, yeah, once I sort of got in the top 16, like you say, I was in and around 10 to 20 for the rest of my career. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> those first few years when... It's just easy to look at the sort of Wikipedia chart of like all your results and you just see sort of nothing for a while. But of course, that's just like dozens and dozens of hundreds of games without getting to a first round. The only one that pops up is the, the 1994 UK Championship, um, which says, you know, like first round. But you won five games to get there, beating Cliff Thorburn and Bob Shepherd along the way. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of wins in there without, you know, sort of the obvious rewards. Yeah, I, I remember the Cliff Foreman game. I remember it fondly, actually, for, for not all good reasons. I, uh, that was probably the, my first real standout win. You know, I'd beaten some decent amateur come to become professional players, you know, but, but that was my first sort of proper win against the, someone like everyone knows. And uh, he, he said afterwards about how well I played and, you know, he was really impressed with my all-round game. Uh, I wasn't, even though I was quite young, he said I'd like a very mature game. So that was nice to get from him. But then driving home from Blackpool, I uh, my, my car blew up 
near Doncaster. <laughs> so so uh, I had to get towed all the way home from Doncaster. I'd be in about four in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you can never have anything nice in snooker, can you? No, 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 no. <laughs> Get it in one hand, give it back in the other. But yeah, that, that qualified me for my first ever uh, venue. And I, and I played Joe Swell. And uh, yeah, that was when, when things, that was like the start of things, you know, I started to really feel like you know, maybe I could have a career in snooker the first few years, like I say, as, as fun as they were, you know, probably some of the best laughs I've ever had in Blackpool with all them players there, you know, great times. But it wasn't until sort of, yeah, sort of 95, 96, I started being a professional snooker player, really, like treating it like a professional sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, and, and Phil's quite right to say that you had a number of years before the match that people remember you for a lot, really, which was, was the Steve Davis one. I mean, uh, that match was sort of extraordinary. You played so well to go into a big lead. And I've heard you talk before about, I mean, all players have been in this position in every venue, but I think it's magnified at the Crucible. Steve obviously came back at you, and that was quite a lonely place, your chair, wasn't it? When You really understood, I think, what, what that, that tournament in particular could do to players. Oh yeah, that was that was my my first real first real insight into what pressure is. You know, I'd I'd, I'd obviously I'd, I'd felt pressure before. You know, qualifying for the Crucible, getting beat to qualify for the Crucible in previous years. So I knew, I knew what pressure was, but that was that was like something else, a whole new level. And and the way Steve is, and the way he conducts himself, it just makes it even more of a pressure cooker. You know. He, He's very upright. His his body language is so good. His whole demeanor around the table. He he literally made me feel like I was just a, a young rookie. Like you know, nothing's gonna just sweep me aside. And 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 because of maybe maybe because of the way I am, and because of how aware I am of what's going on, situations, and how honest I am myself, I, I did feel like that. You know, he made me what he was trying to do worked. Whereas you see some players, they sort of like just all they're interested in is their own self and they couldn't care less what anyone else is doing they probably just deal with that better but I, he really like done a number on me and, I, and and one of the things I remember as well I come back I went to the toilet at 9-7 and I come back and the other match had finished so when I come back the, the screen was up and and the whole place then was just about me and Steve and it was just like I just again like that next frame I, I was a waste of time. Might as well just give it to him, not bother playing. It was I just took me a, another frame just to deal with the situation of that, you know, because again that changes the whole atmosphere in the in the place when the screen goes up. But you won the match. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, still is. I, I get a little bit. I got a little bit of luck on the last red, and and no doubt Steve will remind me again when I see him at the Crucible in, in April. <laughs> he does it every time, and I keep I keep trying to tell him that I, I meant to pot the red off the pink, but he's not having none of it. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's still uh, it's still it still haunts him. You know, he, he must you know he's won, he's won everything. He must have lost some absolute heartbreaking matches, but for some reason that one that one still gets him, which is a feather in my cap. <laughs> Uh, it's sort of underrated the psychology of uh, Davis. I remember Auntie Hamilton was on here and he said he played at the Crucible and he came back from a break and Davis was just sort of staring into the crowd and Hamilton was, it just sort of freaked him out. He's like, why is he doing that? What's going on? And that got in his head. And it's just, it's all just little things. <laughs> like you said, it's just, it's a, he's a master of psychology. 
Oh, he was brilliant. And and it, he literally he literally just took over. You know, if I if I missed a ball or if I played a, a poor safety shot, it was it was never nothing was ever like naughty or untoward or out of order. It was all like proper like gamesmanship. But like I, I just if I played a poor safety shot, he would be like at the table. He'd be like, you know, I'm, I, oh, I just felt like oh, I need to get out of his way. I need to get out of his way. It's, this mm-hmm. is like the Steve Davis show and it's all about Steve now. And, and I, you know, I shouldn't have thought that. I should have just stood up and, you know, I had none of it. But when you're, when you're young and you're inexperienced, you know, it's what happens. And he, and I still remember it was brilliant. And I, I just, you know, I, I think people could learn a lot from not watching the actual balls we've missed or balls we potted, just watching like players like that, great players of our of our history, how they conducted themselves because it, it counts for so much, it really does. And then uh, another great player in the next round, but a very different character, Ronnie O'Sullivan. What do you remember of that game? I remember I remember playing really well in that game. Uh, I remember uh, I went into the last session nine seven down, but I'd lost I'd lost two frames. The, the previous session from being 60 in front frames I shouldn't have lost so it should have definitely been like eight or maybe nine seven to me and I, and I remember saying to my friends I said I actually fancy this this morning I'm playing good and we started at 10 o'clock in the morning and we was in the car at 10 to 11 <laughs> <laughs> we rattled off I felt really confident really good thought I was gonna like really give him a game and you know go close and he only won four frames in like 40 minutes it was brilliant <laughs> I never never got a look at it so, <laughs> so that's why I remember that game yeah I mean, you mentioned Ronnie earlier and just sort of, I guess that's sort of a, a respect from, from you must go back a long, long way. Um, and you, you beat him in, I think you beat him twice, I was having a look at your record, but the one at the UK Championship must have meant a huge amount because of, because of that. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a big win. And that, that still gets a little bit of footage on social media when they have the, uh, the players' outbursts, Ronnie's... Outburst still makes the makes the highlight reel in that one. He, I, I lost the first. I don't remember like so. He talked to Neil Robertson. I remember every single game he ever played. I remember a few, a few standout ones, and that's one. I was five three down after the first session, and Ronnie had played like unbelievable snooker, and and I felt like I was winning to get out of that five three. I felt like can't believe the score. It should have been like seven one the way he played. And then, so again, I sort of went into the, the final session confident and I started well and Ronnie missed a couple and I just sort of punished him. And then he, his head went, you know, he, he, he missed a ball at, at 6-5, I think. I'd won the first three, he missed the ball at 6-5 and he just lashed the table, walked out, went to the interval. And I, and I sort of stuck with it and I, and I got the win. You know, I think I won 9-5 from 5-3 down, which is, you know, it's like that. It doesn't sound like that against Ronnie at the time, who was tipped to win every tournament he entered you know that was a that was a big old win for me that one yeah very much so. sorry Connie. <laughs> we both going at the same time but I, I just wanted to, to sort of say Joe we'll come back to some happy moments but you you have a some pretty painful ones actually in the years in the years following losing your first uh, ranking event final the David Gray defeat in the, in the UK semi I know must rank among your most painful and then, obviously, the, the Crucible semi against Ali Carter. Those toughen you up, don't they, though? I mean, they're, they're bloody hard at the time, and I'm sure you still reflect back on them, you know, particularly those very close ones. But they're the ones that, that make you battle harder, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think without a doubt, you learn you learn more from your defeats than you do your wins. I think that's a that is a fact. But at the time, you know, they're they're tough. They're tough to take because, and and you know, it's it's not them them like real tough losses. They're they're not coming in the last thirty two or the last sixteen. You know, they're 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 big moments in someone's career. You know, to get to a UK final, to get to a world final. You know, they're even if you don't go on to win, you know, they're they're, they're something you know that goes down in the in the history books and stuff. And I, I'm your own personal sort of CV. They're they're big moments, you know, world finals. They don't they're not easy to come by. So yeah, it's it's disappointing in, in where they sort of come, them defeats, but but you know, that that's the nature of the game. Someone someone's got to win. I was I was there, I, I give it my all. I just didn't didn't have quite enough at the end. Is the crucible a very different place when it goes? I mean, you mentioned that the curtain going up against Steve, but it's different again when you've got that table in the middle, isn't it? It it becomes a I would say an absolutely perfect arena for snooker. It, it, does it feel kind of different when you upgrade to that one table setup? Oh yeah, it's, it's, it is it is like you've moved to a, a different venue. Yeah, and and luckily you now we've got some great people behind the scenes at World Snooker. And I remember I, I finished late late at night. I beat Steve Maguire thirteen twelve in the court final. And uh, when I was doing my press afterwards, uh, I can't remember who was talking about. So it might, might be Mike Ganley. He sort of said, he said, just, just, uh, just like, if you want to come down in the morning, it'd be a good idea if you just, just walk out into the arena when there's, when there's no one there and just have a little feel for it. He said, because it will feel totally different tomorrow. And, and it was, it was some real good advice. You know, I, I did do it. I was tired, but I went down there and I had a little look around because it, the whole place changes, the whole atmosphere, everything, you know, all of a sudden, all the focus is on you, even though it is, for the first sort of week, week and a half, it doesn't. There's four of you in that in that room. All of a sudden, you know, it's it's all about you and your opponent, and and the whole place changes for the better. You know, it's, it's an incredible place to play snooker. It's the best place to play snooker. But but yeah, again, like you said, the the whole atmosphere changes. And you you spoke of sort of how that, that feeling in, in the Masters final against Ronnie um, was it that sort. Of- level of nerves or like numbness in at the crucible i don't really remember being that nervous not like that in that in that match no i was i was just pretty chilled i think you know obviously the the match nerves i get every single time i play but there was no nothing extra not like some of the other moments i've had in my career i remember just really enjoying it enjoying the match enjoying the moment just like I said, I just didn't just didn't get over the line. Ali was Ali was pretty strong, you know, in all four sessions. It, it, it to and fro. You know, I was in front after the first session, behind after the second. You know, back all square going into the last game. So it was it was it was a very even game. It just just come down to the odd the odd ball here and there. Um, what's it like just to play a game of that length? I mean, how how tired are you after that mentally? Obviously, yeah, I I, I, I didn't realize. Exactly. That's the, that was the that was the best I don't think I've been to a quarter final or maybe two quarterfinals before that. But you know that I didn't really appreciate what it takes to be world champion, and and I haven't been world champion. I was still I was still two days short. But I was I was literally just so fatigued for like a few weeks after that, and, and not not physically. You know, just I just couldn't sort of do anything really. Just absolutely mentally shattered because you put so much into it. And and I was still four sessions, you know, 
less than what the winner would have done. And that was one thing that really stuck in my mind. When I got to the semi-final, Stephen Hendry said to me, he said, because uh, he was in the other semi-final against Ronnie, I believe, he said, uh, well done, you've, you've just reached halfway. And I, and I looked at him and I thought, no, there's like, there was 32 players. There's only four left. I'm much nearer than that. But, but when you break it down, you've, you've played, I think you've played two, five, you've played eight sessions. You've still got eight to play. You've won uh, 26, you've won 36 frames. You've still got 35 to win. So that, you, technically, you are only actually halfway when you get to semi-final. And, and it's quite a scary, scary thought, really, that you know, <laughs> after playing all that snooker, you are literally at the halfway stage. Very much so. Uh, I want to push you forward to your next final. And it, it, what, what it does is it gives us a chance to ask you about your relationship with Neil Robertson, who beat you on that occasion. I mean, he, he will often wax lyrical about you. You were a big help to Neil. And you're very close, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I'm meant to be going to play him today, but just like Neil, true to his word, he uh, he booked the wrong flight for Gibraltar, so he's had to rearrange his flight, and he's now flying today. So that's <laughs> typical Neil. So yeah, no. All jokes aside, yeah, we are close. We're not. It's it's a different sort of relationship, you know. I would never ever call Neil one of my sort of best friends on the tour. You know that that sort of accolade goes to the likes of Holty, Gerard Green, Barry Hawkins, Mark Davis. But <laughs> Holty will be like, delighted with you, I mentioned yeah, here. No, I, I concentrate there, I made sure I put him in. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think in terms of like snooker and, yeah, I've, I've been like a, I suppose I've been like a mentor really for Neil, not in the last few years, you know, he does it all on his own now and occasionally he'll call me and, you know, I, I did jokingly message him a little while ago and said, I think I messaged him after the World Championship last year, I said, look, if you want to win the World Championship again, I'm available. Because I, I, I genuinely do believe I, I could, you know, because he's got the game. There's, there's no doubt about it. You know, he, he should have been more than one World Champion. Yeah. And I just think sometimes he does it all on his own, you know, and I just think I could really help him win more. Because he, he's, I'm not just taking all his uh, credits away from him. You know, he's done it all himself. But he, he's said himself how much I've sort of helped him over the years. And, and I, I definitely did. You know, I, I know I did in the early part. You know, because he, he could have quite easily landed somewhere else and had a different sort of uh, professional in his club, and it might have been a different sort of setup. You know, I I was happy to play him, even though he wasn't as good as me. There was other players I could have practiced with that were better. I was prepared to play him like regularly, daily. Uh, when I wasn't there, I had to give him full access to my table. You know, he never had nothing when he came over. I think that's quite well advertised. And, and you know, all, all three of the Australian boys that were there at the time, they just had full access to my table. I, I recovered it regularly because they was all using it. Never asked for a, a penny off any of them. You know, I was, uh, and, and yeah. And also like he, he learned, you know, without me actually being his coach, like we play and I would always play properly. It's something I've always done in practice. I've always tried to play the same practice or doing matches. And, and, he, and he, learned, he learned a lot, you know, because he was very raw when he came over. He's great Potter, but that, that was it. And then you look at him now, you know, he's got everything. Absolutely, he's like a complete snooker player. He really has, no doubt about it. Uh, I'd actually press a little bit more on Neil's record in Sheffield, which he's won the tournament once, and that's, that's magnificent. But in recent times, he, he hasn't done well enough. Do, do you think he's having kind of some sort of mental block with that venue, the, some of the things he says? And, and what do you think the issues might be? Uh, it's... To me, it's this one of the craziest stats in snooker that he's only 
been to the one table setup once since 2010. I think that is just the hardest stat to believe. I, I really do. Uh, yes, it is a mental block. He will tell you otherwise because he, you know, Neil was the most positive person I've ever come across. So yeah, yeah. I don't think he's actually missed a ball that was his fault since 2001. He's, you know, there's, there's always a reason for it. There's always an excuse. He's, he's the most positive person I've ever met, and and that's brilliant. And that makes him as well makes him the player he is. You know, whenever he loses, it's not his fault. So he doesn't take any like uh, baggage with him into the next match. But yeah, it has to be a mental block. It can't be anything else. You know, and I, I've said to him, I've called him out on it when he says the venue's too small and. I said, Neil, that's absolute rubbish. Because if the venue was too small, you'd lose in round one every year. Yeah. You absolutely obliterate round one, round two, and then quarterfinal stage comes and, and things start to go wrong. You know, So it has to be a mental block. And, and like I said before, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know, if I was in his dressing room for them three sessions of that quarterfinal, he would win. But I would, I would make sure that he didn't lose, basically. And anything that sort of affected him that stopped him from winning, I would, I'm pretty sure I could like fix that for him. I wonder if he has taken this on board because I think it was at the Masters he was talking about getting a team together um, and surrounding himself with people again. So it does sound like he is listening. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's I, I don't like to take credit for, for Neil's wins because he's phenomenal. You know, he, he, can, he can win any tournament he enters. We, we all know that. But, you know, there's been times in the past where he has called me. I remember one of the early ones, he was at the Crucible and he had Stephen Maguire and he hadn't beaten Stephen Maguire. He'd lost to him something like eight times on the trot. The time he played him before, he was eight nil down to Maguire in the second round. And, and I said to him, I said, look, you can, we, can, we can win this. And, and I went up there and, and he ultimately he won. But it was the first time he beat Stephen Maguire and he beat him comfortably. And, you know, it was just, I think sometimes it's not particularly, you don't put your finger on one thing you say to someone. I think just that, that reassuring sort of person in your corner, mm. just, to, just to stop them negative thoughts coming in. Because like I said, Neil doesn't have negative thoughts, but he obviously does have them at the quarterfinal of the Crucible. He has done over the last few years and, and there's no one there to sort of fix that. So I, th- I, think, I, I think Neil, if Neil does get to the ones they were set up, I just cannot see him losing. I really can't. Is that sort of mentor in your corner of a pro role something you'd look into after you've after you've played after you've finished playing, Joe? Yeah, but it'd have to be. Obviously, they would have to want me, and I would have to want them. I wouldn't just if someone said to me, "Oh, would you do this?" It wouldn't just be a straight yes, you know, because I think I think you have to have that kind of bond and that trust with certain people. And and you know I think it's very important. You know I've had I've had lots of people try and help me over the years or offer to help me, and it's much appreciated. But the only one that's really actually helped me was was Terry Griffiths, and that's because I, I completely trusted him and completely believed in what he was saying. So I think there's there's a lot more to it than just being like a mind coach or whatever you want to call them. You know there's there's more. You need that sort of special connection, the chemistry there. Mm. Is it awkward when you're playing Neil? I mean, he 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 didn't really take as much pleasure as as he could have done from that final win. Um, and I, you know, because I think there's that there is that closeness there, or is it? No, you play each other enough now. There's you, you know, you, you you're both too long in the tooth to worry about that type of thing. I think we've always been quite good in that regard when we played each other. I think we've handled it quite well. I think that that final was probably the the worst one because I think. 
Neil has wanted me to win a ranking event for for so long. You know, he he knows like how much it means and whatever. And and the fact that it was him that beat me in the decider in the ranking final, I think that was quite hard for him. And that was genuine. You know, his genuine reaction at the end. He was, you know, he was more upset than I was actually. And and it was nice to see that that was definitely genuine. But when we played before other times, you know, he's he's just as ruthless against me as he is against anyone else. You know, it was just that that one that one occasion in the final. You know, he beat me in Australia once and. And it was literally, I felt like something I'd seen out of Rocky. Like before the match, he didn't want to like talk to me, didn't look at me. And and I thought, well, it's just a bit weird. You know, it's just say hello, mate. It's not a big deal. But he was in front of his home, his home crowd and his his family were there. And and he was just like all out. It was as if like we hated each other, the way he was carrying on. But so, yeah, so we've always been quite good. You know, we've always played properly. Both played to win. Obviously, respect before, during and after. But... But yeah, that, that one occasion was was quite hard for, for Neil to deal with, I think. Yeah. Can I ask you about Terry Griffiths? What a lot of players have, have spoken about Terry's influence over the years. And obviously, you know, former world champion, you know, one of the uh, you know favourites we all remember, certainly myself from growing up and watching. But what does he do when he's when he's coaching that's 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 kind of a bit special about Terry? I don't know, really. He just he just understands. You know, I've had a few people and, and there's a few players that now have got mind coaches and they're doing really well with them and they're working well. And but I've had a couple and I just couldn't really take on board what they were saying to me. You know, when I, when I sort of spoke to them about the way I was feeling like during a game or in an interval, the, the responses were always the same. You know, I'll stay in the moment, stay positive. And that, I thought, yes, that's all right. That's all right saying that. But whereas Griffiths... He knows. He knows what it's like to to sit at the crucible and, and not pot a ball for four frames or or not want to get a chance because you're embarrassed you're going to make a mistake. You know, he, he knows when you tell him that, he knows. And he can he can then like, you know, pass on his wisdom and, and give you tools to sort of deal with them sort of things. So again, like I said about like maybe me being a mentor one day, it's it's having the trust and belief in the person that's talking to you in what they're saying is is gonna work and it's and it's helpful advice. Yeah, it's interesting because you obviously don't have to have done something to be able to talk about it. But I think in the crucial moment, you just need to get that trust across, don't you? Yeah, no, no, absolutely you don't. You don't need to be, you know, I, I think I'm I'm more knowledgeable about football than anyone else on the planet, but clearly I'm not. <laughs> so you don't have to have been good at something to uh, to be able to talk about it. But I think just depending on the individual, like, like I say, there's, there's some players got co- mind coaches with them now that are doing really well. And it's obviously working for them. So it's, it's just it's to the individual. But for me personally, the only one that's ever really helped me was Griffiths. And I, I just put that down to the fact that I could, I could believe what he was saying because he's, he's lived it and he's done it. And he, and he could appreciate exactly what I was saying. Not just, he wasn't just giving me something to, to do. Like he genuinely knew where I was coming from. Mm. Uh, do you work with anyone now? Or is it sort of past that stage now? No, no, I haven't. No, since I sort of Terry stopped, I've, I've sort of like, I, I still go back to some of the things Terry done for me. You know, we, we everything was down on tape and it, sometimes I still just remind myself of a few little bits and bobs and yeah, it's yeah, sort of all there. It's all there now. You just got to sort of search around in your, in your head and find it at the right time. <laughs> well, that makes sense. 
Well, you are listening to Talking Snooker here with uh, Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf, and we're delighted to have Joe Perry with us. And Joe, let's talk about your your ranking event win then, the Players' Tour Championship. What were your feelings when you won that? That must have just felt like, was it pure joy, pure relief, a mixture? Tell me. Yeah, I, th- I think it was, because it wasn't the big, uh, the big grand parade at the end you know we didn't have like the, the confetti machine and the and all the all the cheering and the photographers there it was it was more <clears throat> more relief I think that I'd finally got that ranking event win out of the way you know for years and years at the time there was there was a few of us in contention to be that person you know the, the best player never to won a ranking event I think it was myself Ryan Day and Anthony Hamilton were always the three sort of put up in that in that on that sort of podium so and then obviously I had a few near misses, you know, deciding final, deciding frame, other final defeats. So to to finally finally get it done was was a massive relief. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way of describing that win. Yeah, really. Pr- probably extra special to beat Mark in the final. I think it was his birthday yesterday. I think uh, I saw you tweet that he's your snooker hero. Yeah, well he is because to me, well him and John Higgins really because you know I I first played Mark Williams in an under-16s event in Bedford when we were 13 and he was 12 and he beat me 3-0 and he was absolutely brilliant and and he stayed the same. You know, Mark Williams is the same now as he was when he was 12, 13 years old and to do what he does, and, you know, he, he's, he again, he's sort of, he's achieved everything, you know, don't get me wrong, but he sort of lived in the shadow of Ronnie and John a little bit. I don't think so, but he would tell you that. And and you know he's just he's just stayed true to himself. Everything's the same. He still plays exactly the same. It's just it just for me. It's just like if you're going to look at someone for an inspiration, starting out as a snooker player, I think Mark Williams is your man. And a shout out to Jules there, Phil. We've had a bit of correspondence, haven't we, asking about about your hero growing up. So I'm sure a lot of people will, will be very interested in that. Oh, and you're a hero, of course, as you say, as you carried on throughout your career. But what, what is Mark really as laid back as he is? And does he really not get affected when matches are, are sort of uh, going to the wire? No, I, I think it's genuine. I, we, was, we were playing the Championship League once and uh, it was when like the, the Apple Watch thing come out and it could monitor your heart rate. And, he, and he'd done something, OK, it was only the Championship League, but it's, even so. He was, I think it was 2-2 and he was 64 behind and he cleared up with 67 or something to win 3-2 on the black. And, and literally the, the player's lounge was literally behind the table. So it took you like a second to get there. So he literally come out and he and he, he looked at, we had already took a note of his like heart rate when he started. And then it was actually lower. His heart rate was lower when he finished the match than when he started. And I said, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just not fair. You know, it, it should be... It should be your heart should be pounding out of your body by now. He should be like you know struggling to breathe, and he was his heart rate had actually gone down. So, you know, if he if he's worked on that over the years secretly and not told no one, then every credit to him. But no, he he I think he is actually as he looks, he is. He's just so calm and just just deals with it, just handles it. It's just phenomenal. I think maybe I was going to ask you this at some point. Maybe this is a good time since we're mentioning those kind of guys, but. If you if you had a top five players of all time, what would what would that be made up of? Uh, I, I think 
I think I would put. I'm, it's going to cause a bit of a stir, I think, because you know. There's, there's That's what we want. Of, That's what we want, Joe. There's a lot of Hendry. <laughs> there's a lot of Hendry lovers out there, and rightly so. But I, I think my my one and two would would be Ronnie and John Higgins. I think that they have to be one and two just for their longevity. You know, John Higgins is still arguably the player of the season this year. You know, it's it's 2022. He started in 1992. You know, I just think. For that reason alone, Ronnie and John have to be one and two, and also the the quality of depth we've got now, and have had for the last sort of ten, fifteen years, and they're still up there doing it. I think Hendry's in there. I think Selby has to go in there, and to be honest, there's there's more than there's too many to put in the top five, you know, because I'd really want to put Mark Williams in there, but I think Neil Robertson has to has to be in there as well. I think. I think probably Mark would just get the edge over Neil for me at the moment, just until Neil wins another another world title. I think to be in the top five of all time, I think you have to have multiple world titles. I don't think one is is quite enough to get Neil in the top five. But if he was to win one or two more, then for me, he would jump right up near the top of that that list. Yeah, and it's so hard with when you're going back in eras as well, because where does Davis go in there as well? Yeah, that's what I mean, it's hard. It's, you know, it's, it seems a shame to leave so many people out, but but you have to. You know, I just I just think, but just look at the the standard we've got today and what players have to compete with. You know, and, and I, I still think there's room for that to change. You know, if Judd Trump again, if he if he wins like another two or three world titles, then then you know he has to he has to come into the, the reckoning as well. But I think I, I don't think it's all about the world title, but it has to it has to count for a lot. You know, because that is the one, isn't it? And I think if you've only won world, listen to me, only won one world title. You know, <laughs> but but if you've only won one, then I, I, I think you know you need a bit more than that to put yourself in the top five. Yeah. So, sorry, one more on this bit. As soon as you mentioned Hendry, popped into my mind. Um, he's he's not playing the World Championship qualifiers, which people find is a bit odd. Uh, what, what, what have you made of the whole comeback? Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to call it a comeback, really, isn't it? He's made a couple of appearances, and it's it's a shame. Uh, I don't know. I think I don't want to speak for him. I, I just wonder if it was, you know, I wonder if like he just sitting in that commentary box, and I've sat next to him, and it's it's an absolute joy. You know, he's a great commentator. It's hilarious in there. You know, we have to turn the microphone off a few times because I get the giggles. Some of the things he says, but I think. Sometimes sitting in that commentary box, you can be a bit misled by how hard the game is. It looks so easy from in there, you know, and that's the one thing I've really tried not to do is forget how hard snooker is when I commentate because it is so hard. And I think maybe he's watched a lot of snooker and thought that, you know, he could get back to winning ways. And I think, I, I don't, you know, he's such a great competitor. I wouldn't like to think that the reason he's not playing and everything is because he can't cut it. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that to be the reason, but I think maybe he's realised that to have any chance, he's got to play six, seven, eight hours a day, and maybe he doesn't want to do that. And and I totally get that. You know, he's he's of an age where do you really want to be in a suit club playing for seven hours a day? Probably not. And for him to compete, that's what he's got to do. And and I think maybe the, the it hasn't all worked out as he as he anticipated. Would you Would you think? I don't know if he's going to get offered another wild card, but what what would your opinion be on that? I think he'll get offered one, and I, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay for 
the likes of him and Jimmy because they have given so much to snooker. You know, they've given everything. The only time I would question it is if they're getting offered a wild card instead of someone else. You know, if, if there's one going, then yeah, let them have it. Let them have it for as long as they want it. Jimmy as well, you know, Ken, whatever. But not at the expense of someone else. You know, if, if there's a spare one, let them have it. That all makes sense. Um, Joe, just to wind you back a little bit to that to that win you had in Thailand. You, you sort of mentioned there about the sort of strange presentation. Was there no trophy? Is that right? There had no trophy. Uh, there was, luckily for me, I, I've got a real good friendship with Mark Williams. Uh, and he's like, sort of, was the only person I sort of celebrated with. You know, we went out for, we went out for dinner and a, and a few drinks, quite a few drinks. And, you know, he was, he was all, all for it. Obviously, I paid, obviously, seeing as I won. But, yeah, you know, if that had been someone else, someone I didn't have such a great relationship with, you know, they would have just wanted to go back to their room, obviously, and not be too happy that they just lost the final. And I'd have been there literally all on my own. But, you know, me and Mark, we sort of made the most of the evening. We went out and I think Mark's friend was there as well. So we went out and we, we got a little bit, a little bit drunk and sort of made the most of it. But the actual game, like when the match finished, there was a guy from Thailand who was, I think he was the hotel manager or something from someone from like Thailand snooker who handed me, obviously, the, the great big life-size check. And someone took a picture, and that was it. Yeah. That was it, yeah. Back to my room, get changed, and go out. <laughs> There's worse places to celebrate than Bangkok, I imagine. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I, I can't really remember, to be honest. It must have been a good night, because I can't remember exactly what, what happened. So we obviously got a bit drunk. I remember the, the plane journey to China day after wasn't too much fun. But, yeah, I think we, we, we made the most of it. <laughs> Maybe the words, the words "never again" were crossing your lips <laughs> during that flight for the for the for the five hundredth time. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've already mentioned, you know, a few times you've mentioned the, the Masters run you had to the final. I mean, I, I well remember the Barry Hawkins match and the Ronnie match. I was there for both those. But you know what? I'd forgotten that you beat Stuart Bingham and Ding Jun Wee both six one. I mean, that that was a bloody terrific run. I mean, you were flying that week weren't you yeah and I, I think again that that sort of that week was coming on the back end of not having a great start to that season because I remember thinking oh you know, I've got to go to the Masters now and it's such a like you're so in the spotlight and I thought oh god I'm good to play an awful you know just not looking forward to it at all and and yeah I remember playing that, that first match and I, I played brilliant played really well you know absolutely like beat Stuart comfortably it was never like wasn't even a, a contest really and then I took that into the next match with with Ding and followed it up and played really well again so yeah, it's, it's funny sometimes you know that's why so much of snooker is played in the head you know sometimes you go out there with no expectation whatsoever and and you can just play very free other times you can go out there and you you, you think you're playing so well and you expect to play well and it just doesn't happen. And then it's very difficult then. You know, so much is to do with your, your mindset on the day and, and leading up to the events. And, and how long that just one good performance can, and we're going right back to start here, if you don't know what's going to happen, you play well. I mean, who knew a, quite a random qualifier against Lee Walker would have led to so much? You know, you, one, when things do click, it can, it can make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you have to be, 
you have to be sort of mentally prepared and ready for what's coming. You know, you've got to be, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not just automatic. You don't play well one day and then it all just clicks into place. There's, there's more to it than that. But, but yeah, it, it can literally just be that, that one defining moment that gives you all the rest of the tools to then go on and, and, and do, do good stuff. But it's, it's so easy. It's so easy to get down on yourself at this game, you know, because it's, it's so debilitating at times, you know, things are not going right for you and you feel everything's going wrong. And obviously luck plays quite a part and you never seem to get any of that when you need it. And, and it, you, you can really start feeling sorry for yourself. And that's the, that's the dangerous sort of web to get involved in. Mm-hmm. Well, this is an audio service, but it's all in Joe's face. I can tell you folks, when he's talking about the frustrations of this game, <laughs> it's writ large there. What does the future hold for you now, Joe, would you say? I mean, are you giving it a number of years? Are you, of playing are you going to do more bit more media bit more coaching what ha, ha, have your plans changed because of wales uh no I, I did say uh i think like a year two years ago someone asked me like you know how long i played for and i said i think i'd be quite proud of myself if i was still a professional at the age of 50 mm. and i still sort of stick by that i think that's quite a big achievement especially when you turn pro at sort of 17, you know, so it's a long time to be professional. I think the win last week has, has pretty much guaranteed that without tempting fate. I think that's pretty much that in the bag. So, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I've always said I'll keep playing until um, I'm not allowed to play anymore. And what I mean by that is if I drop down the rankings out of the 64 and I lose my tour status, then I will give up uh, on the pro tour. I won't go to Q school because... For me, if I drop down to that level, then at my age, then that, that's the end, you know. If, if I dropped down out to Q school when I was like 35, 40, 100%, I would have gone and played in it. But but not at the age of 50, not with what I've done in my career already. You know, for me, that's that's telling me that time's up. And then I like, I would play in the seniors and stuff like that, without a doubt. I'd keep playing, but at that level, as opposed to professional level, I'd love to grow the sort of media side of it the, the commentary and the punditry I'd love to get a few more opportunities to do that and really start work build on that sort of career for afterwards I'll definitely continue the coaching because I really enjoy it and you know I've made quite a few sort of I don't know what to call them really are they I don't, I don't know what they are they're not clients they're I don't know what they are but students you know yeah students yeah yeah and we got quite a I've got quite a nice little collection now that come back regularly and I had one the other day a, a Bella brought his 16-year-old daughter over. He's going to be playing on the ladies' tour. And I think that's one that I could really, you know, use that as because she's got potential to sort of go on and, and win tournaments in the ladies' game. She's only 16, but that's a good time to start, you know, with her, sort of really sort of try and nurture her into being a, a bit of a winner. And hopefully we can get some young lads come along as well to play on the, the men's tour. And, yeah, just, just keep my, involved in everything, really. But obviously... At the forefront of everything is to keep playing snooker for as long as I can and then just let the other stuff sort of happen. This seems like a good time to ask you to talk about um, some of the youngsters you're, you're coaching there. If you have genuine concerns about the future of, of, of snooker in the UK and for the UK, would you say compared to other years and generations, there seems to be a dearth of young talent? Oh, without a doubt. You know, we, there was a few of us got our heads together at the start of the season, I was working very closely with a fellow from the EPSB uh, and we were sort of trying to, like I say, rack our brains to try and get the interest back going again and put on lots and lots of 
little pro-am events for, for amateurs around the country. And, and I think it's been good. There's been a few, but I, I just, I just worry about it. You know, I, because it's not like when I was, when I was 13, 14, you know, you either, you was either good at football or you went to the snooker club. That was pretty much your options or you didn't play sport and you, you sort of, whatever you done then, but they, they were the two options. But, you know, now, you know, got children and family and stuff and, and none of them are interested in playing snooker. There's the nearest snooker club to where I live is, is like 15 miles away and that, mm-hmm. that's struggling. It's just, and you just wonder where they're going to come from. You know, it's, it's expensive if you have to go and play in an academy as good as they are and they're, they're amazing places. But, you know, if, if a kid like enjoys playing snooker and he's 14, it's, it's very hard for his parents to put him in the academy at £500 a week. You know, it's not really the done thing. So you do worry where the, where the talent's going to come from and if it's going to keep coming from the, the UK. Some very tough times, I think, in that regard. I think it's encouraging, as you said, your coach is going well. I know... Uh, Michael Holt has sort of been quite surprised how busy he is with it, and Stephen Holworth's doing some as well. Um, so that is encouraging that there is interest there. There's, there's definitely interest there. People would love playing snooker. You know, I, I think, I think on fan base wise and like TV audiences and stuff like that, I think it's never been better. You know, you've only got to look at the ticket sales. You know, I, I remember playing at the Crucible in my early times there, and and the Masters, and it wasn't sold out. You know, mm-hmm. and and it's a lot more expensive to go and watch snooker now, yet they, they sell out every single time. So the interest is definitely there. It's, you know, probably, if anything, in that side of the game, more so than when snooker was booming. But it's just it's just the, the getting the, the players, you know, and, and yes, the interest is there for like the likes of us coaching. But, you know, I think I've only had probably two or three people under the age of 21 Okay. You know, they're, they're people that guys that play snooker and they, they play in the league and they want to be better. You know, it's mainly that sort of age group. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting many like wannabe juniors that want to be like any better than club players, really. Right. And the mention of Stephen Hallworth there reminds me of a piece that David Hendon's written this week, actually, and he's spoken to Stephen as part of that and talking as Stephen did when he joined us on, on Talking Snooker about the struggles that some of the players at the sort of wrong end of the rankings, if you like, are having. And he, he's arguing that they should get at least expenses. I mean, do, do you feel sorry for people that are playing now that are at the wrong end of the rankings? Yeah, I do. And I had, I had a real in-depth chat with uh, Neil Tompkins and Simon Brown and Joseph Ferguson last week in Turkey. You know, the meeting was arranged before I'd won the Welsh Open. So it sort of was on a different sort of platform really, but the meeting was already arranged before that to talk about such things. And yeah, I, I, I do have so much sympathy for them. I really do. And I tried, tried to explain to, to Jason that when I first got through, I think it was Q score at Plymouth in 1996, when they reduced the tour to 96, there was 96 players on the main tour. And I was guaranteed, I was guaranteed 12 and a half thousand pounds if I lost every single match I played that season. Mm. And okay, it's not you're not going to get rich with that, but that that's that was the least I could earn. I lost every single game I played. I said, now there's players like ranked 17 in the world. They lose every game they play. They get nothing. Hmm. And and you know and 
and it's difficult and it's they, I think something can be done there's there's so much more money in the game now than there was then for some reason it's not spread uh, you know listen, I don't I don't win lots of first prizes so it's very easy for me to say do we need do we need two hundred thousand pounds to the winner you know is a is hundred thousand pound or hundred twenty five thousand pound not enough but give give the last thirty two five thousand pound as opposed to three you know give give the last first round losers give them a thousand pounds as opposed to nothing it's easy for me to say that because i'm not number one two three in the world but i just i just think it would make a difference you know maybe not instantly but i think for like career choices and stuff if there is some sort of guarantee that if you do make it as a professional you, you, at least you're going to be on a wage yeah i suppose it goes back to you know what your mum was saying to you when you were turning pro um if they looked at the ranking list and everyone outside of the top 64 is, is not earning very much money it's it's not it's not very appealing to parents you know pushing their kids down that route yeah and I, I, it's the other thing i said last week in the meeting i, I said you know unless you've got that backing from your parents or a sponsor it's so difficult. And with the way the game's set up where we've got these open draws and I've, I've never been a fan of flat draws. I said this in the very beginning, you know, when it didn't really matter to me. And to be honest, when, when flat draws were probably a benefit to people like myself, because back then, 2010, the players ranked sort of 65 to 128 weren't that good. They are now. Everyone on the tour can play now. But back then they wasn't. So it was basically guaranteed to win our first second round match in every mm. tournament so it really helped people like myself but the way the system's set up you know these people get on tour and and they get some tough draws they play like six or seven top 16 players in their first season you know it's just so disheartening and, and they're, they're not going to make any money because who, who can beat them sort of players week in week out in round one and and, and I said to them you're going to lose a lot of talent not because they're not good enough just because it's too difficult you know back when, when we was all playing we played amongst players we was ranked next to and we gradually worked our way up the rankings. You know, this, this, I've never been a fan of this, this system. Yeah. They're not, they might not be good enough to beat those top boys now, but it doesn't mean they couldn't in the future. If they well, were. The, 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 the two obvious ones that spring to mind, even like after my time is Neil Robertson and Ding Jun Wee. Neither of them kept their tour card. Neither of them. And they're two of the greatest players the game's ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Neither of them kept their, kept their tour card. And that was under a system where, you did play people of your own ranking. You know, how would they have got on if they'd have been in this system? You know, we, we, who knows? We might have lost them. If, if Neil's parents couldn't afford to keep funding him for three or four years, you know, he might not have been a snooker player. He might have to go and get a job. And, yeah. and you know, it's, we're never going to know that. But that, that could potentially happen to people down the line. You know, some talented 16, 17-year-olds. Look at Julian Boyko, you know some of the draws he's had this year is just ridiculous, you know, and if he has another two years like that, uh, he might think, well, what's, what's the point? Was, I'm 20 years old now, 21. I've got to do something in my life. I can't keep losing first round of snoops almost every week. And then we might lose talented players because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Fascinating thoughts. We, we really could talk to you for, for hours on end, Joe. We're going to move on to correspondence uh, actually now, because we've got some really good questions in First up, a friend of the podcast, George Wayham, who says, many congratulations on your win in Newport. I remember going to a cafe in Newport when World Championship qualifying was on there in 2002, and I spoke to you with your dad. 
You were a gentleman then, and that victory in Wales was so richly deserved for a classy player and person. Back to your 1992 roots, quotes, unquotes. Was there anyone around that time that didn't make it, perhaps turned pro but didn't hit the heights, or even a player we haven't heard about that was beating O'Sullivan, Williams, Higgins and yourself? And you all reminisce, wow, what a player. How did he not make it big? The one that instantly springs to my mind is Chris Scanlon. He was, he grew up in the Ilford area. So at the time you had the Barking lot, which was Mark King, Chris Scanlon, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and God rest his soul, Chris Brooks, who, who also would have gone on to be a great snooker player. He tragically died in a car accident when he was 17. But Chris Scanlon was, at the time he was better than Ronnie. If ever they played each other, he would beat Ronnie. He, uh, he just had a different path in life. He went out to Holland. He didn't have like the, the family background and the, you know, the security you need. He went out and lived in Holland when sort of snooker grew out there. He'd come back as a pro and he'd done all right, but he'd never had that, you know, everything you need. Never had all the tools you need to be a great snooker player. Well, to make it as a snooker player, he was a great snooker player, but he never, you know, quite made it. So he's, he's the one that really springs to mind. And the other one I said was Chris Brooks, you know, Tragic, died in a car accident along with another lad called Martin Carroll on the way back from a pro-am. And uh, he was professional. He turned pro in 91. He was he was due to play Bill Wervenick to get through in the, the World Championship in his rookie year. He was he was up there. And, and when I think people say, like, how would he have done? Well, I think to myself, well, he was better than me. He was better than Mark King. He was better than other players of that age group. And we've all done all right. So he would have definitely done as, as good as me, if not better. So they're, they're two that really spring to mind because they was like in my sort of neck of the woods as well, like London and Essex. I think the, the, the name that crops up is Jonathan Saunders. I know Mark Williams manages him sometimes. Yeah, he was, he was, I think he was a Sheffield boy. And I, I only sort of, because I was never good enough to represent England in any of the sort of national stuff. I never really come across him. He never used to come down to our sort of junior events down this down this end of the country. So I'd never really saw them. They, they come across him because they played in all like the national staff mm-hmm. and the world juniors and things like that. But I know, I know Ronnie talks highly about Jonathan Saunders, but I, I personally never ever sort of saw saw enough of him to sort of comment. But, but yeah, they, they, if, they, if they talk about him, then, then, you know, they know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah this is from uh, Paul Tibble on email. Uh, seeing that Joe Perry is on this week, could you ask him if allowing for time? Has his recent well-deserved Welsh Open win made him realise that he's always had the talent and game to win a big title? Confidence is always important in any sport, but surely more so when it's a solo played sport. And Joe often tends to talk down his game as he feels he's not as good as others. However, on his day, he's more than capable of keeping the best players honest, as his re- recent success proved. I'm sure I, along with many other supporters, would love to see more deep runs in tournaments. He's more than capable. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair comment. I think that's 100% on the button, really. That is true. But again, I think a lot of it comes down to your personality as a person. I don't, it's very hard to change who you are as a person. You know, I've always been the same. I'm, I'm very real. And, you know, I, I see lots of players have come and gone and, they walk around like they're, they're going to be world champion or they've already got world titles to their name and really they haven't achieved anything. And and I can't, I've never been able to do that. You know, I, I need physical proof that I'm up there, you know, and, 
And until you've got them trophies and until you've got them wins, it's all right telling yourself, yeah, I'm good enough. I can beat him. I'm better than him. I've, I've, you know, I should be doing this, should be doing that. I can't be that person. I have to actually do it before I can sort of believe I'm going to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, Gareth Col- Collins next in sunny Wales on email. Hello to Gareth. He says, thank you for continuing to produce this podcast on a weekly basis. Uh, sharing your thoughts on snooker and providing a forum for fans to ask questions on a regular basis. Congratulations, Joe, on your success at the Welsh Open. Here's my question. What is the highest amount of centuries you have had in one day practising? I'm interested to hear how your game converts from the practice table to competition. And would Neil Robertson score even more heavily in practice? Uh, I'm I'm not really... I've no, never been really a, a bit of a stat freak. Neil would tell exactly he's best. You know, that's, <laughs> that's the way Neil is. Uh, I know I've had days in practice where I've had like getting up close to like 10 centuries in like two or three best of nines. One one day I can really remember Mark King come for a practice. And I think we've had a, we had a best of 15 for some reason. I know I played best of 15. And I think I had something like four or five centuries against him. And then I went to do an exhibition that evening and I made seven in nine. So that was a pretty good day. That was like five in five in a practice session, then seven in nine frames in an exhibition. So that's probably my best, my best ever day. It's definitely my best exhibition. Yeah, I'd, I'd sort of, I, and I'm four on the spin, and then I went for a one, four, seven, and I missed on something like the ninth black or something. And then I made three more. So that was a, that was a pretty good night. <laughs> I've always thought in exhibitions, obviously the pressure's off because it's an exhibition, but is it a weird pressure? Because if you don't make centuries, you're sort of disappointing people. Yeah, a lot. You can sort of tell how the night's going to go because obviously we're, we're all used to like playing and, and it's, it's easy. You know, we get good chances and you play, but a lot of it can depend on, on the table. You know, most of the time we play on a table that's got slightly bigger pockets, so that mm-hmm. helps. But I've done a couple of exhibitions where the table's been like so bad and then it's just awful because... You know, we, we do need certain conditions to be able to play the way we play. And I've played on some where, you know, I've made a 50 break and I'm I'm absolutely delighted because that's like the most you're ever going to make on some tables. And, and that could be quite a frustrating night. But yeah, it's, a lot of it's to do with the table and, and how sort of the night goes. And yeah, that was, I remember that when I made the seven in nine, the, the organiser said to me, he said, uh, yeah, you see how you get on tonight. He said, because the most we've had, Paul Hunter again, great lad you know god bless him he he was there the year before and he made two centuries there joe johnson the year before that and he made two centuries so he said like you've got two to beat and i made three in the first three so that was that was that out of the way and then then the night just got better and better yeah superb um this is from gary moss on email another friend of the podcast uh, it says, I often intend to email, but don't always get around to it. But an appearance from Joe Perry, though, was an opportunity which couldn't be missed. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to have met Joe on several occasions, and a highlight was when he afforded me a couple of hours in Cambridge for an interview in the early days of my blog. He's so personable at all the venues. He really is a gent who seems to enjoy the interaction with fans, both at events and on Twitter. This, this for me, along with other things, makes him a prime candidate to be one of the main members of the BBC team in the years ahead. Having seen the inner workings of the BBC snooker team, can he please tell us what he thinks are the strengths of the BBC coverage and team, and also whether he believes they come in for undue criticism when compared with the brilliant Eurosport? 
Surely different is good and the two work well in tandem. Does he find the bash the BBC culture as a bit tedious as I do? Uh, I, th I think, yeah, I think we have to give them some slack. I think, you know, when they put things together, it is absolutely tremendous. You know, when they, when they put it all in one bit, it is great, brilliant stuff, you know, real professional stuff. The, the big criticism with the BBC is, is when they have to go off air. You know, because if you're a snooker fan and you're involved in a match and it's getting to like the, the real nitty gritty of the tournament and, the, and their scheduling is up, that that is like really, really hard to take. And that's mm. that's for me, that's the biggest criticism of the BBC. Yeah, other than that, they're, they're just absolutely tremendous in everything they do. You know, when I when I work at the Crucible and, and you've got Hazel Irving there, you know, she's. She's so good. She's just, you know, there's nothing, there's not one stone left unturned. She does all her research. And then you've got the flip side to that where you've got some of the pundits that perhaps don't put as many hours in and, you know, they're not quite so up to date with what's gone on in all the other tournaments, you know, not just the BBC events. So there's a little bit of that comes into play. And I do understand from a fan's perspective how frustrating that can be. But I think, I think they're sort of, they're trying I think they're moving a little bit, you know. I think, you know, it's going to be a, a sad day when when Virgo and Dennis sort of leave the leave the BBC sort of commentary box. But you know, I think they've realised that things do move on, and they're they're going slightly different. You know, it was nice last year. I, I was involved. I enjoyed it. I think it went down well. You know, to to bring Judd and Jack into it was again a nice little touch. Something different. Sean Murphy seems to have really embraced it this year uh he's he's like making a making a play for future sort of sofa hogger and uh yeah so so yeah i think i think they're moving they're moving with the times but again i, th I think that's the for me that's the one big thing they, they can't really i don't think it's the people that are involved in snooker are happy about it either but i think it's the powers above them that decide what hours snooker's on and you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone in the BBC snooker team would love to show every hour live, mm. all day, every day. But that's not always possible when you've got such a big organisation as the BBC. Well, you know, when Anthony Hamilton was on here and he did mad as cheese, uh, Phil, and that became a phrase. I think Sofa Hogger might be the one that we're left with <laughs> from, from Joe Perry. I've heard you actually say, uh, Joe, I mean, talking about Virgo and Taylor, obviously John was on this podcast and said, He's been told it's the final season for him at the BBC. And you were saying they're brilliant, obviously, you know, not just because they've been doing it so long and they're great voices, but they're great at starting a frame, ending a frame and doing all the sort of important bits, if you like, in the right places. Yeah, and I think I think there's an art to that. You know, it's, it's easy for us sort of so-called experts to sit there and tell you what's going on in the actual game itself. But when it comes to building drama... And, and setting a stage, I think that that takes a lot of years of experience and and sort of know-how. And and for me, Virgo's one of the best for that. And I think regards to the other channels that Sherlock Snooker, I think that's where they've got it right. I think they they go along the the football route where they have like a, a commentator and an expert, for want of a better phrase, you know, like ITV have. David Hendon or Phil Yates alongside a McManus or a Hendry. And I think that works because you just leave all the, the journalistic stuff to the to the, like the, the journal the journalist and you leave the 
the intricate snooker stuff to the snooker band. I think I think sometimes I, I think from a snooker fan's perspective when I watch snooker, I think that comes across nicely because when you've got two snooker players in the commentary box, you know, you sort of both do reach for the microphone at the same time because things happen in a frame that you both want to talk about. Whereas when you're alongside someone that's just doing this, the stats and the, the stories and this, that and the other, you sort of don't get in each other's way. It sort of just tandem works nicely. Very interesting. Yeah, I, think, I think we both agree with that, especially as journalists. We want to keep journalists in jobs. <laughs> I, know there was, I know there was the famous one at the World Championship where I think it was Hendry and Parrot on. And they opened by saying that John had not seen this player play before and Hendry had seen it once. So it's, it's not necessarily what you yeah. want to hear out of a game. No, I, th- I think that's the thing. You see, when you've got, when you've got the younger sort of, I'm not, I'm not like, it can anyone's job here or anything, but, you know, when, when Alan was started doing it and when I, I do it, because I watch snooker all the time. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to know who gets to the semi-finals or the quarter-finals of the Gibraltar Open. Not just because I'm there, even if I wasn't going, I would know. Whereas, you know, I'm pretty sure these other guys, John and Steve and people like that, they've got other things going on. They have quite a busy lifestyle, you know, away from snooker. So they're, they're probably not going to take much interest in the Gibraltar Open this week. They might find out who wins, but they're not going to know any stories leading up to the final or anything like that. So I, I think, yeah, we, we can be critical of them, but, you, you know... Like you say, you, you'd want you'd want the people talking about snooker to know everything about all the players they're watching. And from from a fan's point of view, it doesn't seem like it's too hard to do a bit of research. But like I say, it's it's what it is, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Neil White on Twitter. He says, "Could and should the UK Championship be best of thirteen frames to set it apart from other best of eleven frames events?" like the China Open and Players' Championship. Well, I think I'd like to make that a bit wider as, you know, do you think the format should be changed back generally to extended maybe semis or even earlier? Has the sort of changes over the years in the UK frustrated you? Yeah, yeah, because it was, it was always like World Championship aside, that was always my favourite tournament because it was you know that it did stick out a little bit more it was at a good time it's always in a good time of the year just leading up to christmas and it was a it was a special i got, I got to two semi-finals there when it was at the barbican and it was it was always a, a special tournament you know but see i i know most for some reason they, they sort of tried to get out of this qualifying and make everyone like in the same round and all that and it for me it just sometimes it goes against what it's trying to achieve you know if you had a couple of qualifying rounds and you took 32 players to the Barbican, two tables, best of 17s, how it used to be, you know, it, it would really give that tournament back at what it used to be, you know, it'd be a special tournament. And, and it should be, you know, it's the UK Championship. It's supposed to be the second biggest tournament to be playing. And I think any, like, fans that have come along to snooker in the last five years, I'm not sure they would see that as the, the second biggest tournament now. You know, I, I'm not sure, because especially some of, like, the the ITV events, you know, the Kazoo series and stuff like this tour championship that's coming up, you know, it, it just seems bigger and better just because it's played like the one table, the, the format, you know, the longer frame, two session matches. It just gives the feel of, of a bigger, more important tournament. So I think, yeah, I'd like to see the UK reestablish itself as Snooker's second biggest ranking event. And talking of big tournaments, to go to the biggest one, this is James Simpson on Twitter. Um, could you ask Joe what you, I feel is always a hot topic of a question should the World Championship leave the Crucible 
I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say here, but I'll leave it to you. No, never, never, <laughs> ever. It's, it's, it's the, it is Suka, you know, it's, it's the home of Snuka. Okay, yeah, we, we could go and play somewhere else and, and double the amount of fans watching treble probably, but, but would it be the same? No, it, it wouldn't. You know, I think it's okay to, it was, we sort of travelled the Masters round a little bit around London till we found a good venue and now we found one. It's, it's perfect, Alexandra Palace. I don't think that would be the same for the World Championship. You know, I think it, it brings that special atmosphere. You know, what, what are you going to do to go somewhere bigger? You're going to just like make the arena bigger and, and you just lose all that intimacy. And no, I, I, for me, no, it has, to, it has to stay there. Why do you think some people have been calling it for it to move? I think maybe on the back of the success of the Masters, you know, the, the 2,000 people in there and the atmosphere it creates. And, you know, maybe because the limited ticket sales and people are trying to get tickets, can't get them. I, I don't know. But, you know, you, you've been there. Like, when you get to Sheffield, like in and around World Championship Week, it's, it's something special now. And, and to build that somewhere else would take years and years and years. And, and I think it would really, like, take away what the World Championship is all about. It's, it's not just inside the theatre. It's like I say, it's the whole city comes alive them 17 days and and it's just just incredible place the whole atmosphere of, of Sheffield is just buzzing mm. that's great and M18 snooker blogs actually asked on Twitter what is your favorite snooker venue to play I guess it probably could be the crucible if it is what what will be next yeah I think the crucible is the best uh I think Ali Pali having played there a few times is is pretty special and then the other one, really, I, I suppose, as, as good as the, the crowd and the atmosphere is in Berlin, I, I didn't actually enjoy playing there. I think I would have done more so if I'd qualified this year because they finally put the tables facing the way they should face rather than being all sorts of angles. So I never never actually enjoyed playing there on the outside tables because of the, the way the lighting situation was and this, that and the other. But in terms of a crowd and atmosphere... I think I think uh, Berlin is is slowly creeping its way up the up the yeah. order. And finally, from our friend Snooker Loopy on Twitter, uh, can you please congratulate Joe on his iconic victory in Newport? Feel like we've done that now. Uh, before bringing him back down to earth by asking how he feels about being the uh, air quotes forgotten man of the class of '92, no offence intended, would just be interesting to hear his thoughts. Thanks, gents. Yeah, and I've said a few times. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was in the same school as them, but I wasn't in the same class. Uh, <laughs> they're, uh, no, they're, they're three special players, you know, just ridiculously good. And, the, and they're still doing it. All three of them have got a chance to win the World Championship. You know, they're just three unbelievable players. I, I was lucky enough to turn pro that year. And there was a few of us turned pro that year. You know, good players still holding our own. But no, I've, I've never, ever put myself in that class of 92. And actually, a final one for me. Uh, it seems weird that it's been sort of three years since you've been at the Crucible. I know there's been reasons behind that and everything, but um, you've played there a load of times, but it would be special to be back there again, wouldn't it? Yeah, that was one, another one of my sort of before Wales happened, you know, it was a few sort of things you want to do. I, I'd, I'd still, it was something that never, ever interested me at all, but now it does. It's making a 147. The other one was to still be a professional, age 50, and the other one was to have one more crack at the crucible so yeah I'm, I'm 
I, I would love to get back there again, definitely, yeah. And you said those guys can still win the World Championship this year. Who's to say you can't? Well, yeah, that would be a complete lightning bolt, wouldn't it? But <laughs> no, I've always said going into the World Championship, I never go in there saying, yeah, I can win it this year. But I always go in with the same attitude that whoever I get drawn against, I can beat. And, you know, if you do that every single time you play, then ultimately you end up being world champion. But but there's no one in the tournament I haven't beat before and there's no one I can't beat again. So that's 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 always been my attitude going into any tournament and, and I'll just stay in the change now. Well, we wish you all the best for that, of course. And, well, Phil, what can we say apart from just thanks so much, Joe? I mean, you've been... As we knew you would be an absolute delight, you, you, you know, we could listen to you all day and uh, don't give us ideas. That's long enough. And, uh, you know, <laughs> s- sincere thanks, you know, but all the best for the remainder of the season. And uh, will, you, will you come and join us again one day? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Always, always love to talk about snooker and, and you guys, you know, you're doing a great job as well, reaching out to the masses. And, and also, like, you know, we get to talk about other stuff that we don't always get the opportunity to talk about, you know, format changes, the problems in the game. It's not all. You know, we're not just all talking about all the good stuff. There's lots need needs to talk about in snooker and needs being put out there for everyone to sort of get your opinion. So, yeah, happily come on again. Lovely, yeah. It always seems to happen. We go on forever and we think we could do another two hours of this. So, yeah, we'll do it another time. Brilliant, definitely. All the best to you, Joe. Thank you so much indeed. Just a, a brilliant, brilliant episode. So enjoyable. And uh, I know that many fans will be saying the same uh, after listening to, to your sort of very eloquent and uh, interesting thoughts on the game and, and your career and everything else. Phil, we'll be back on Sunday night, won't we, after the uh, Gibraltar Open uh, to review that tournament and look ahead to the Tour Championship. So g- goodbye to you as well. Yeah, pleasure as always. Looking forward to Gibraltar and best of luck there, Joe. We'll speak to you after Thank that. You. Yeah, definitely. Keep your thoughts coming to us. Tweet us at Talking Snooker or email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com. Tweet us at Talking Snooker or email talkingsnooker at yahoo.com. But for now, for this terrific, this very special episode from Joe, Phil and myself, here we go. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.